Hello everyone, Callie Hannah here with a quick disclaimer from the future, 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 future. <laughs> the episode you are about to hear was recorded prior to my public coming out as a transgender woman. As such, you will hear myself and others refer to me by my dead name and he, him pronouns, and that is not how I want to be referred to now. I, well, I go by Callie and I use she, her pronouns. Uh, the rest of the episode has been left as is for the purposes of historical preservation, but uh, just know that it is not accurate to my current uh, gender identity. Thank you, and enjoy the show. The hipster and the nerd. Yes, hipster and the nerd. The nerd. One went to the genius. The other is quite absurd. Exactly which is which. Off the fence is which. Yes, good sir. The hipster and the nerd. 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 Hipster and the nerd. Created by Steven Spielberg? No. Greetings, dudes, dudettes, and non-binary amigos, and welcome to another bodacious episode of Hipster and the Nerd, the most triumphant podcast where we discuss movies, TV shows, comics, video games, and all manner of geek and pop culture to see what we can make of it, dude. I am Chris R. Hanna, Esquire, and with me, of course, is my most non-heinous co-host, Brian K. Brecker. How are you doing today, my excellent friend? I'm doing excellent. Today, I was just watching these Bill and Ted movies, and I kept thinking, these are excellent movies, and we should talk about them. Indeed, the Bill and Ted trilogy is most triumphant. Absolutely. Anyways, uh, we should talk in our regular voices, <laughs> Yeah, right? I, I, I feel like if I, I, I am not Keanu Reeves or Alex Winter, so if I tried to do that whole stick for like two hours, it would probably kill my throat. Same. It's impressive that they still can do it in the third movie. Oh my god, we will, we will talk about that, yes. Um, but so yeah. today, of course, we're talking about the Criterion Collection-worthy trilogy of comedies from the 1980s, 1990s, and now the 2020s, called Bill and Ted, which is, of course, referring to the title characters of Bill and Ted. Yeah, Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan. Yes, and which movie are we going to start talking about first? Well, of course, you know, we have to start with the first film, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. In the beginning, there was the song I Can't Break Away tied to cosmic visuals. Yes, that's how the movie starts. And we got this weird giant floating crystal thing that comes towards the camera. And the music is by David Newman. He does the score, but the uh, a lot of the songs that are in the movies tend to be like late 1980s to early 1990s funk rock, like bands such as Primus or Living Color, bands like that, but not necessarily those bands. That sort of funk rock genre would go on, of course, to influence the birth of new genres such as new metal in the late 90s and early 2000s. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady, you're my butterfly, sugar, baby. Which, of course, has a sterling reputation, and everybody still loves new metal. It's probably considered, you know, the Mozart of music <laughs> genres. <laughs> Over the last 20 years. So, 
The movie then goes to 2688 in San Dimas, California, where George Carlin, who is inexplicably not playing someone who is a raving maniac. <laughs> yes, George Carlin is actually calm in, this, in, yes. in these movies. You're holding me up, Jack. People are waiting for me at a party. I got a trunk full of heroin. Get the fuck out of my way, will ya? He speaks to the camera and tells us that the future is great and that there's lots of water slides now. And that even the dirt is clean. Even the dirt is clean, and that 200 years ago, the two great ones were in trouble, so he had to go back in time to save them. Yes, and then we are, of course, introduced properly to Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan, a.k.a. Wild Stallions! Spelled W-Y-L-D-S-T-A-L-L-Y-N-S, because poor literacy is cool. So we're in San Dimas, California in 1988, and they blow out their speakers playing rock music because apparently when you wanted to make a character relatable in the late 1980s, whether it be Back to the Future or these movies, you had them play rock music and blow out their speakers because they played it too loud. Yes, exactly. Uh... So Bill wants to get Eddie Van Halen on the guitar for their band, but Ted wants to shoot a most triumphant music video. And we won't, you know, we won't be able to get any Eddie Van Halen until we have a triumphant video. That's why we actually have to learn how to play. We won't have a triumphant video without Eddie Van Halen. So Bill and Ted realize, oh crap, we're late for school. Yeah, so they go to school and they go to their history class. Ted tells the teacher what he knows about Napoleon, which was that he was a short, dead, dead dude, dude. Which, by the way... Napoleon was not actually short. That was based off of a miscommunication from the metric system to the imperial measurement system in the UK. Fun facts! While he was short for our times, most people were shorter in the past due to having an inadequate diet. The more you know. So Ted tells the teacher what he knows about Napoleon, and then they get stopped by the teacher, who they thank and try to get off the hook for by saying about how they were so inspired. Great leaders like Genghis Khan, Joan of Arc, and Socratic Method. <laughs> and the teacher, Mr. Ryan, tells them that unless they get an A-plus on their report, which is sort of like a presentation on historical figures about what they would think of San Dimas in 1988, that they will flunk out. And that would be bad. Specifically because one of them is having the threat of military yeah, school. Yeah, Ted is over being them. threatened with uh, being sent to Oaks Military Academy in Alaska. Alaska. <laughs> and that means there'd be no more band. So they get picked up by... I think it's Ted's hot stepmom, Missy, or is it Bill's stepmom? Bill's stepmom. Bill's stepmom. Right, because Bill's stepmom later becomes Ted's stepmom. The Missy thing is a recurring gag throughout the series, and her marital status and how it creates weird entanglements within both the Bill and Ted family trees. It, it's a recurring theme. <laughs> yes. So they make a joke about how, you know, like, Missy is hot. And he's like, but that's my stepmom. Dude. Shut up, Ted! <laughs> So Ted is told that if he flunks out, he's going to Oaks Military Academy in Alaska by his dad. And meanwhile, in the future, George Carlin is sent back in time by the leaders of this new society that were inspired by the music of Bill and Ted. And because later on, we find out that Bill and Ted's music so profoundly changed the world that all of human history has reached a utopia because of it. Yeah, their entire this entire utopian society is based on the, the music of Wild Stallions. Yes. And the leaders have this really cool fashion sense. It's like this sort of retro-futurist aesthetic. I describe them as sort of like future punks. 
uh, and they transform a crystal into a time-traveling phone booth. And that's the same crystal that we saw before in the beginning of the movie. It must be some sort of space technology or something. Now, space a time-traveling phone booth is, of course, a reference to a little-known science fiction British television show called Doctor Whom. <laughs> Um, that's a very obvious reference. Yeah. So they end with the, their salute, which is, of course, be excellent to each other. And party, party on, on dude. dudes, which is, I think, a, a, a philosophy to live by, if I'm being honest. Like, yes. Like, for real, though. Uh, I'm, like, surprised that, I'm surprised that Bill and Ted's philosophy didn't become, like, an actual real-world religion, like it has with, like, the Big Lebowski. Are there Bill and Tedis? If not, there should be. We should start a Bill and Ted religion. <laughs> so they're studying, and one of them says that George Washington was born on yeah, President's born, Day. Born on President's Day. And mistakes him for Captain Ahab. He had a, a peg leg. That's Captain Ahab, dude. <laughs> so they check out Bill's stepmom again because, you know, haha, she, funny, yeah, you're checking she, out your stepmom. She gives them, like, she, she, she comes in to check on them. They're all like, that's your mom, dude. So it's implied that she had a previous relationship with Mr. Ryan, the history teacher. Because, you know, she went to their school. Because she was like a, a senior when they were like a freshman, right? Yes. So Bill's dad comes in and then forces them out of the room and then shuts the door well, really, yeah, well, close, well, does it, well, really slowly. Forces the, well, forces them is a bit of a strong word. Basically, he gives them a $20 bill and it's like, because as they're studying, it's like, why don't you go take a dinner break? And then, and then and he, it's kind of implied that they have sex in their room, which is weird. Kinky? Question mark? Outside a gas station. Yeah, outside the Circle K. <laughs> Either Bill or Ted asked the customer that's going in. Uh, Ted asked, like, at the lady going in. It's like, when did the Mongols rule China? I don't know. I just work here. So a giant cloud opens up and the telephone booth descends. And the man who steps out is, of course, Rufus, played by George Carlin, and tells him that they're going to help him with their history report. Another telephone booth descends now, and Bill 2 and Ted 2 get out of the second telephone booth. They tell themselves from the present that they're going to go on an awesome adventure. 69, 69 dudes. dudes! And that they should listen to, that they should listen to Rufus. Yes, they should listen to Rufus, give my love to the princesses, and don't forget get to, to wind, wind your, your watch. watch. So... I'd like to point out that, like, 50% of the comedy in this movie is just the vocabulary and the way these guys speak. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. You're not wrong. <laughs> like, they use they use terms like bodacious and, like, most excellent. And it's like that they're, like, almost caricatures of a 1980s slacker. Almost in a way that, like, makes fun of the audience while having them be in on the joke, you know? Basically, yes. So they get inside Rufus's phone booth, and they fall through the circuits of time in a really dated CGI effect. Yeah. It's which looks a bit like the cover of Tame Impala's Currents. Yes. And they land in the French invasion of Austria in 1805, and they see Napoleon. Before that, they say, they say, that was most unprecedented, Rufus. Yeah, most unprecedented. Yep. So Napoleon in this timeline is short because, you know, it's funny it's that he's It's a comedy, short. you know. Yes. And he was technically short compared to these people. So the clock in San Dimas is always running. And this gets into the kind of weird, like, running clock, ticking clock element of the story that makes, like, less sense the more you think about it. Yeah, because it basically, I, I guess the idea is supposed to be it's parallel timelines where even as they're going through time, 
the time in their present time is still moving forward, but yet they can't just use the time machine to go directly back to where they were for some reason. But they can do that, and they do it several times. Look, the way the time travel works in the, in these movies is mostly however the plot needs it to work, and usually for comedy's sake. Yeah, and like th- th- there are some things that actually make sense. Because it's a comedy, it can get away with playing a bit more loosey-goosey with time travel. So Rufus leaves them and tells them they must finish the report, and Rufus's phone booth is replaced by a new one that Bill and Ted can get into. Now Napoleon falls from the sky, and they bring Napoleon inside and make Ted's little brother look after him. Yes! So Ted's dad wants to chew him out uh, because, you know, he's so bad with his grades and he lords over the, you know, military school again. And Bill calls from the phone booth as Deputy Van Halen and tells him that they found Ted's dad's keys. Now, the key subplot is a lot of fun. So they next go and pick up Sigmund Freud. They go to New Mexico in 1878 to pick up Billy the Kid. Yeah, so they're in New Mexico in 1879 and we have some fart jokes in an outhouse, which, eh. They're in the Old West, and they order two beers without being carded, and they're like, we gotta remember to go back to this place. They're underage drinkers. I also <laughs> like how they're like, this is just like Frontierland. Yeah, but you can get shot here. <laughs> so Billy the Kid walks in. Billy needs two men for his job that he's doing, and he keeps everything that they get. So he's Bill like, and Ted, of course, agree. Sounds good, Mr. the Kid! They play poker, and then I think it's either Bill or Ted says, whoa, three aces! Yeah, whoa, three aces! <laughs> Like, you gotta have a poker face like me. And, and immediately, the other guys are like, are you cheating us, Billy? Yeah, this obviously sends off, like, red alarms with all the other poker players. And like, are we being scammed? And uh, then the entire place erupts into violence. <laughs> yeah, it erupts into a giant bar fight. A woman holding on to a rope falls through the window. They get thrown through the bar wall, and their heads come out the other side. But they manage to escape. And Billy the Kid gets in the phone booth with Bill and Ted, and then they go back to 1988. Yeah, I, I think personally, my, my favorite part of that whole bar fight is the bit where they one of them is just like look it's the Goodyear blip and it actually works <laughs> so they go to Athens in 410 BC to pick up Socrates, Socrates. which is of course Socrates Socrates it's under Socrates and I like how this is the moment where Bill and Ted kind of acknowledge their own shortcomings and we realize that they are in fact um, very wise because true wisdom comes in knowing that you know nothing that's us dude, dude. <laughs> Socrates is giving a lecture in the forum and then they show up and they say all we are is dust dust in in the wind wind. Socrates is like oh Oh. my god I think so you say that he thinks that Bill and Ted are wise no I think they are wise I mean like the dust in the wind he clearly like views that as this like amazing revelation yeah but I think Socrates enjoys their company more because they lack the pretension of everybody else in the forum that is like, also that's kind true. of the whole point of Socrates and how he was discussed by Plato was that he was constantly going to people that think that they know how the world works and slowly unraveling their opinion until they don't know anything. <laughs> exactly. That's kind of his that's kind of his whole point. So when he comes across Bill and Ted, who make no claims to know anything, yes. <laughs> he is rightfully very pleased. Exactly. So Socrates is terrified by their time machine, but goes in it anyway. So then they arrive at the castle of King Henry. Yeah, they go to 15th century England. So they get Billy the Kid to watch Socrates. <laughs> they see the princesses they told themselves about, and they say, Whoa, historical babe. It's a history report. We gotta stay focused. It's a history report, not a babe report. Those are historical <laughs> babes. 
So they hide in suits of armor. They have suits of armor and they have a fake lightsaber fight. Yeah, they reenact Star Wars and fight with the swords. And then Ted falls down a flight of stairs and gets stabbed by a guard who is alerted. And Bill hides away and he says, you know, this is bogus, heinous. So Bill fights the guard and then Ted knocks him out from behind because Ted apparently escaped from his suit of armor <laughs> yeah. when he fell out of the ground. <laughs> he slipped out of the suit when it when it fell down the stairs. <laughs> so then they hug and then there's a little bit of casual homophobia because 1980. Which is feels very out of character for them, to be perfectly yeah. honest, because Bill and Ted are otherwise the ultimate avatars of wholesome positivity and good vibes. Yes. So like them being homophobic is just that that feels wrong. <laughs> I think it is accurate in the sense that that is how 1980s teenagers or 20-somethings would talk to each other. I suppose. But it doesn't age well. Yeah, it definitely, um, it's one of the few elements of the film that I would say has not aged well. Especially when you consider <laughs> that I feel like Bill and Ted, like, nowadays would very much be like be like the kind of people who would, you know, we say trans right. I feel like Bill and Ted just don't know any gay people. Yeah, but I feel like, yeah, I don't <laughs> think, but I feel like if they met them, they would, they would like them because they like basically everybody who's not a dick. Right. They're so likable that we are concocting different scenarios for them to be even more likable. I'm Bill S. Preston, Esquire, and I'm Ted Theodore Logan, and we say trans rights! I wish that they actually would have, like, acknowledged that in the third movie, because I think that would have been a good thing for them to be like, you know, dude, we used to use a lot of language that we shouldn't have used back in the day, because it was harmful to people, and was most not excellent. That was most homophobic, and therefore very heinous. <laughs> Somebody needs to get Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter to say, to say trans rights is Bill and Ted. <laughs> The other weird thing about it is that they called it back in the sequel as if it was like a really funny moment. I mean, to be fair, it's the bad guy saying it. But yeah, anyways, moving on. So they flirt with the princesses and the princesses hide the two of them and ask to be helped to escape from their arranged marriages. And when the, they find the two and the guy's like, I'm the Duke of Ted. They get captured and they're going to be executed. And it's like, oh, and no. They're gonna be th they say they're going to throw them in the Iron Maiden, which another historical fact, the Iron Maiden never existed either. Really? Yeah. Some guy just saw like a, a sarcophagus or coffin and was like, what if we put like spikes in that <laughs> and then the other person was like that's a great idea that's amazing that's where the iron maiden came from it was never actually a thing that's amazing but they're not going to the iron maiden they're going to be beheaded so a man rolls in with their phone booth using it as proof that they're of their accused witchcraft <laughs> yes. which i think is funny so the executioners were actually billy the kid and socrates there to help them escape yes so they are rescued by Billy the Kid and Socrates, and then they go to the future. Yeah, so they stop in the woods and all get in the phone booth, and uh, Bill and Ted arrive in the future, and the three future people do air guitar salutes. More arrive, and they all say, Be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes. So they get back in the phone booth, but it malfunctions this time. Meanwhile, Napoleon is back in modern day eating ice cream. <laughs> I and love Napoleon... Napoleon with the ice cream, with the giant ice cream sundae. <laughs> Yeah, and Napoleon loves ice cream. So he finishes the giant sundae and proves that he is indeed a Ziggy, <laughs> a Ziggy Piggy, Piggy getting a special little, <laughs> Gets a little from uh, the restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. So they see weird sparks in the circuit of time and end up in Vienna, Austria in 1901. And they're like, dude, it's Sigmund Freud. 
How much extra credit, dudes? So Billy the Kid lasses Sigmund Freud. So now it's 1801 and they steal Beethoven as he's playing for release. They also take away Joan of Arc. And by the way, I'd, love this, I'd like to say that the person that, that plays Joan of Arc, super pretty and absolutely nails the role. And I love her and I want to stand this Joan of Arc and she should get her own spinoff movie and such or comics. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then they get Genghis Khan and they lure him into the phone booth with the Twinkie. Yeah, because of course you would. Con? <laughs> and then Lincoln in 1863. Yeah. Uh, th- now there's something wrong with the phone booth and the antenna's broken. Napoleon gets mad back in modern day whilst bowling <laughs> because yeah. he's apparently a sore loser. I love the whole Napoleon subplot of him just going around to different places. Yes. So Napoleon gets kicked out of the bowling alley. Now we go all the way back to 1 million BC and Bill accidentally snaps part of the antenna. So he puts it back on with gum and tin can, and then they show up as the second phone booth in the beginning of the movie as Bill 2 and Ted 2. And this is when they deliver the information to now past Bill 1 and Ted 1. Yes, that conversation made more sense this time. So Rufus tells them that in San Dimas it is tomorrow, and that he forgot to wind his watch. So they drop in on the stepmom watering plants. And they get all of the historical figures to do their chores so they can yes. go out. Which is one funny. of the one of the hidden um, benefits of time travel. <laughs> yeah, they take them to the mall and we get this great little almost like Dawn of the Dead esque montage of them having fun in the mall. Yes. Now we cut and we see the other SAS are getting applause because they're starting to give their presentations, the ones that they need to do by the end of the day in order to, you know, stay together as a band and end up saving the universe. And then yeah. what happens? Yeah, so, yeah, so there's the whole montage at the mall, you know, Socrates and Billy the Kid flirting with random women, Beethoven discovers electronica, Genghis Khan tears apart a sporting goods store, and a whole bunch of stuff happens, and it eventually leads to all of the historical figures getting arrested. And uh, they they also find out that the little brother um, actually ditched Napoleon. (laughs) He was a dick! (laughs) They assume that Napoleon went to the Waterloo water park, and Napoleon gets pushed into a water slide, and he absolutely loves it. So they drag Napoleon away from the water park, and Joan of Arc discovers aerobics. Yes! Beethoven tries out the synthesizers, and Billy and Socrates approach some girls, and Sigmund Freud shows up, and the girls call them geeks. <laughs> Which, of course, Sigmund Freud would ruin any date or any attempt to I have believe, any interaction with a woman. I believe you have a mild form of hysteria, and I, I literally wrote in my notes, Freud, you think everything is, is hysteria? <laughs> So Genghis Khan discovers baseball bats and security is called. And Lincoln and Freud are taken by security, as is Joan of Arc and the others. And in the police station, this hilarious moment where they're asking who Sigmund Freud is. And he's like, tell me about I, your mother. Like, why do you claim to be Sigmund Freud? Why do you claim I'm not Sigmund Freud? <laughs> why do you keep asking me these questions? And then we cut back to the speeches that are going on. And the football guy gives this hilarious speech where like, he's like... Things are- Bigger, but also smaller computers. <laughs> so, do with high school football. so they find out all the historical figures are in jail and concoct a, pl- a plan to steal the keys, which has already happened. And this is where the dad's keys comes back because apparently he had all the jail keys on the same thing as his regular car keys, which is, by the way, a terrible idea to ever do that. Yeah, probably but don't. But because he remembers that in the future, he will go back into the past and then plant the keys, that then explains how his dad lost the keys when he blamed it 
on his son and was actually true that his son took the keys but only in the future where he would then plant it so that he could then get out all of the historical figures this movie effectively operates on stable time loop logic where in time travel yeah. is always meant to happen and this entire sort of climax here is built on the idea that bill and ted after they succeed with their report then go back in time and set things up for their past selves so that they can win yeah, which it's kind of questionable whether or not they'd actually remember to do that. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Well, I mean, they comment. clearly so, do. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, they do. <laughs> so they sneak into the police department where Tad's dad works. They remember to get a tape recorder for two thirteen, and this happens because stable time loop. And then they get a fax from the past. They free all the historical figures, and then the dad finds the tape recorder, which has then been distracting him, because they've been sneaking around, you know, the police station to try and get everybody out. Yeah. So dad finds Bill and Ted and he remembers in the future to stick a trash can on his dad's head. So they <laughs> escape through the window and drive back to school. And then what happens? All right. So they get back to school and then they put on what is what is probably the single greatest history report of all time. Yes. Please welcome for the final report of the afternoon. I'm Billy the Kid. He shoots a light in the school, which, by the way, bringing a gun to a school is also another thing that has not aged well. Oh, but, oh, know. yeah. <laughs> You would not be able to do that today. It's like, as soon as he pulled that out, everyone in the auditorium would be like, he's got a gun in my choice! So Billy the Kid introduced Bill and Ted, and uh, they introduced Socrates, and Sigmund Freud psychoanalyzes Ted. Yeah, yeah. so he talks about, like, Ted's, like, Ted's father has his aggression transfer. His father has gone through all this stress and, you know, has made Ted the avatar of all his frustration, and thus his aggression transference... Onto Ted. Whoa. <laughs> and then he offers to psychoanalyze Bill. He's just like, oh, no thanks. I just got a minor Oedipal complex. <laughs> and then Missy, who's in the audience, then looks like, what the fuck? Like... Um, my theory is that she keeps divorcing these dads because their sons are too weirdly into her. <laughs> so Lincoln gives a speech, and it's totally moving, and he ends with, Be, Be excellent, excellent to, each to each other, and party and on, Party dudes. on, dudes! So then they shoot their music video, and then uh, they're like, wait, but maybe we should start we learning, should start how, to learning how to play? And then, of course, Rufus comes back, George Carlin comes back, and he gives them guitars, and, and he also brings the princesses, because right. he rescued the princesses right before they were about to marry those two royal ugly dudes. So while it's Talon's music is the foundation of the future society, Rufus tells them, and uh, he gives them guitars, and then they all shred out. Yeah, George and... Carlin can shred, apparently. Yes, and that was hilarious, and I love that. Yeah, I like how the movie ends with, they still don't know how to play, and then George Carlin just turns to the camera, and just says, they do get better. And that's how the movie ends. This has been a most excellent adventure. So Chris, what did you think of Bill and Ted, the most excellent adventure? Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is a really fun movie. It's, it plays a lot of fun with time travel. I like all the different historical figures and, you know, how they play around with that. There are obviously some things that haven't aged well, like the use of the, the F-slur and certain effects and um, a couple of other things. And while I would say kind of, and we'll get into it later, I would still kind of say if only by default, it's probably the weakest of the trilogy. I still think it's a lot of fun and I really enjoy it. I'd say it's my second favorite of the trilogy. I really like how it plays a lot with stereotypes of, you know, this sort of slacker archetype. I enjoyed the music a lot and I also like the sort of... Uh, happy-go-lucky nature of these two characters because really yeah. i think a lot of the comedy comes from the fact that they're so central to the future of the universe this trilogy is carried by just how 
good of of characters bill and ted are yeah but the thing is is that they are too not necessarily dumb but too unaware of consequences and threats they're very naive and they also really just have a great time all the time that the there's completely lack any understanding of how serious the consequences are to what's going on or you know their their place in the universe they're just very simple you know yeah and there's there's nothing and wrong that, with that leads to very endearing characters yeah so now we get on to my favorite of the trilogy and my favorite bill as well and ted's bill and bogus ted's journey. bogus journey which is one of the most criminally underappreciated sequels of all time like fascinating mixed reviews from critics <laughs> yeah so San Dimas, 2691, a man with a weird collar pledges to stop Bill and Ted before they become famous. This is, of course, Denomalos. Denomalos, who's like the only time this series has ever had like a main villain. First name Chuck. Denomalos isn't a great villain. But he's just sort of there. He works. He works for the plot yeah. and the story, you know, but he's not the best thing about the movie. They're in the Bill and Ted university and these guys just invade. And I love, absolutely love the art design and the costume design, they all look like they're out of some sort of futuristic Yo Gabba Gabba. <laughs> you know? That's a good way of describing it. I also like how they bring in the guy from Faith No More. And they describe yes. him as the founder of the Faith No More Spiritual and Theological Center. <laughs> so they enter a computer room and put on visors. And Rufus enters through a phone booth. Side note, something I really like about sort of the phone booth concept is that as of furthering the riff on Doctor Who, the idea with the phone booth in Bill and Ted is, no, it, it, it actually isn't any bigger than it is on the inside. Um, so they all have to squish into this tiny phone booth. But it's huge! It is very small outside. It's just in here it's big. I don't know. I can't believe it. It's so big. Don't believe it. It's bigger inside than out. Yes, that's because the TARDIS is dimensionally transcendental. What does that mean? It means that it's bigger inside than out. Well, Sergeant, aren't you going to say that it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside? Everybody else does. Still only a police box. Explain to me how this TARDIS is larger on the inside than the out. Why is it so much bigger inside than it is outside? Oh, the doctor told me that was because it was dimensionally transcendental. What does that mean? Well, it means it was bigger inside than outside. You're essentially bigger inside I know. than it is on the outside. I know, I know. How do you do that then? Well, it's bigger on the inside than the outside. Don't worry, it's bigger on the inside. What did you say? Bigger on the inside, is that what you said? Yes, come on, you'll love it. The inside's bigger than the outside? Yeah. Much bigger on the inside. It's bigger on the inside, that's all. Oh, that's all? It's bigger on the inside. Is it? I noticed. It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Oh, I know all that bit. It's bigger. I mean, it's bigger on the inside. Bigger on the inside. It's a lot to take in, isn't it? Tiny box, huge room inside. What's that about? Let me explain. It's another dimension? It's basically another dimension. What? I've been reading up on all the latest scientific theories, parallel universes. I like the bit when someone says it's bigger on the inside. It's bigger on the inside. Yeah, you get used to it. Let me stop you there. Bigger on the inside. Is that the phone box? The bigger on the inside phone box. Smaller on the outside. Okay, that is a first. It's a spaceship. Yes, it's bigger on the inside. Now, I don't have time to talk about it. Bigger on the inside. Actually bigger. Yeah. So they have Bach, the guy from a place that worships Faith No More, and Miss Rhea Pichel, who's some sort of future artist, inventor. So the class is ambushed by the anti-Bill and Ted terrorists. Yeah. And they have a sphere inside a box. And the leader of the anti-Bill and Ted's is Rufus's old teacher. This is, of course, Denomalos. Now, the terrorist guy 
has a robotic Bill and Ted that ripped their faces off. Yeah, and the yeah the evil Bill and Ted robots, which are the real best villains of the movie. <laughs> yes, and I absolutely love the special effect and the prosthetic work going on here. Oh my god! It's like yes. something out of like Total Recall. The puppetry is fantastic. It's just hilarious and off the wall and crazy, and I don't understand why this movie isn't widely considered better than the original because it is. It, yeah, just... it it is. It's a it's an improve. It's a, it's it takes everything that worked about the original and improves on it. So their mission is to kill Bill and Ted and take over their lives and prevent the future. Of course, the future is the one where they're inspired by Bill and Ted and yes. Wild Stallion. They're gonna music. make yeah. The idea is to create a militarized and disciplined, orderly future via the teachings of Denomalos, and to do that, they're going to kill Bill and Ted. So Robo, Bill, and Ted enter the phone booth, but Rufus follows it with the electric string of the guitar he threw on top. Now, the princesses became the drummer and keyboardists of Wild Stallions, respectively. Yes. They are from, of course, medieval England, Iowa. Yeah, so Wild Stallions is trying to get into the Battle of the Bands, but the lady is like, would you hire you? I don't know. But, but look, you work for pretzels and cheese, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you a shout. <laughs> and now, later on, we find out that person is actually George Carlin in disguise. Yes, that's true. That is that is the, the twist. Um. <laughs> so she'll put them on at midnight, and Wild Stallions have a band bus now, and Ted promises that he'll pay his dad back, who's still lording over the Alaskan military school thing over him. Because he brings the guy who runs the military school at this because it's like the princess's like birthday party i i guess yeah, it's their 521st birthday 521st party. birthday party and the the guy who runs the military school is at the birthday party and he lords the military school over all of them despite the fact that they've graduated <laughs> and they have so, their own apartment now <laughs> yeah so all four of them are hanging out and uh missy's divorced billy's dad and married ted yeah missy is now married ted's dad <laughs> missy is now both ted's stepmom and bill's ex-stepmom which makes them step brothers kind, kind of <laughs> so anyway they both take each lady alone and t and uh, give them something that they wrote and it keeps cutting back between both of their poetries and it's hilarious <laughs> i love that another thing. thing that's great about this movie even though the female characters in this don't really get as much characters i'd like is that they provide a more emotional core to the conflict than is in the yeah. first movie I, and also to be perfectly honest up until face the music i don't think either of the princesses were really worth the shit as characters so they list animals that are scary yes. in the poetry and they promise that everything will work out i know that when we brought you here from england we said we'd give you a better life and i just want that to be true you know like that yeah so they proposed each of the lady with little plastic rings yes <laughs> and they both agree and to marry them so now Robo, Bill, and Ted descend from the sky. And they deliberately and attempt to squish a cat on their way down. They miss. Yeah, they miss. This comes back later when they try and hit the cat with the car. Now, Ted pops out his eyeball to talk to the bad guy, Denomalos. This is, of course, Robo Ted, who wants to know if Rufus came with them through the portal. And they say, no, man. He we didn't totally come lost the him in the circus of time, dude. <laughs> <laughs> So Chuck Denomalos forces the students to re read his autobiography. <laughs> yes. 
Um, so Elizabeth and Joanna, who are of course the princesses, call and say that uh, that they think that Ted and Bill are losers and that they're quitting Wild Stallions. But of course, this is a T two moment, and it's actually Robo Bill and Ted calling the real Bill and Ted to tell them that their girlfriends don't like them anymore to try and then get them to then go back to their place and try and concoct a plan to go after them and then kill them. Yes, <laughs> it's not a complicated plot. <laughs> So uh, then there's this great moment where they're sad at, in their apartment watching Star Trek, the original series, specifically an episode where Kirk climbs up this desert mountain. And of course, this gets called back to later because they visit the exact same rock face and they reenact a scene there. So there's a knock on their apartment door. And then what happens next? There's a knock on their door and evil Bill and Ted are there. Of course, our Bill and Ted do not know that this is evil Bill and Ted. So they're so they're just like, "Dude, it's us again." Because, you know, they remember the time travel from the last movie. Yeah. I said in my notes that Bill and Ted meet Robo Bill and Ted, who claim to be future Bill and Ted to help Bill and Ted find present Bill and Ted's girlfriends. Yes. Yes. So they go on a road trip. I I'd also like to point out that there's a line of dialogue in this movie that I feel like would have made would have also been a good title for the third film. Bill and Ted's unprecedented expedition. Yes. Uh, so they go on a road trip and they're forced into the back of the van with like no seats. And they're like, we're cold, dude. And they're like, shut up. Shut up. And this is the first indication that there's something wrong with these two guys. Because yeah. they are not being bodacious or excellent to each other. So they park in the desert and tell them that they're going to kill Bill and Ted. So Bill punches Robo Bill and Ted and says, whoa, you're metal, dude. And then they all do air guitars, like even the robot ones do air guitars yes. together because they're like, yeah, it's super cool. So then they push them up the same rock face as from the Star Trek, the original series episode, Casual Homophobia. Yeah, although this time it's from the bad guys, so it's like, you know they're evil because they're being homophobic. I thought it was more just like, it's something that they would say. Probably, but I like to think it's, you know they're evil because they're homophobic. So they throw them off a cliff and spit loogies at them. Yes! <laughs> Can't believe Bill and Ted are fucking dead. So Robo, Bill, and Ted, believing to have killed Bill and Ted, go and steal a Porsche. <laughs> yes, they do. So Bill and Ted wake up in the afterlife, and this is when this movie gets phenomenal the, yeah it, where it gets bonkers and in a phenomenal sort of way because yeah what other comedy sequel can you say yeah the main characters get killed off by evil robots of, of themselves <laughs> and then they wake up in the afterlife and play out a joke version of the seventh seal by ingmar bergman so the grim reaper is there they're just like, death. How's it, how, yeah, death. And they're just like, how's the hanging, death? So death wants them to go with him, but death states that they may challenge him to a contest. And that's, of course, a reference to the Ingmar Bergman story, The Seventh Seal, which is about a man who plays chess with death. Now, they Melvin death. They Melvin like death. They give him a wedgie. And walk back to San Dimas and see that Robo Bill and Ted are being sexually aggressive, which, you know, yes. yikes. Yeah, they're being sexist uh, jackass. And trash the place more than it already was, which is saying something. So they, so they try and go, go get help and they they they're like well how do we do that so they go over to the police station but i'd like to point out that the girls when they walk through bill and ted who are now ghosts they become all liquidy and weird yes that does happen that's a good effect yes. so yeah they go to the police station and they're like do you really think this will work and they're like it, it worked, worked in, in the, the exorcist, exorcist one and one three, and three. <laughs> that would be in the file it is not in the file it is not and um, that's funny because that's actually a contemporaneous reference when this film came out, The Exorcist 3, because this movie came out in 1991 and Exorcist 3 came out in 1990. Oh. And that's actually uh, shows that I think the makers of this movie have bizarrely good taste. Like so far they've referenced both The Exorcist 1 and 3, otherwise known as 
the good ones. Yeah. And Ingmar Bergman's classic film, The Seventh Seal. And there's a lot of other classic film references throughout this movie that really show that the people that made this film are a lot smarter than Bill and Ted. <laughs> it's a shockingly <laughs> smart movie. Well, I think all of the movies are shockingly smart movies, but like... This is the one where it, where it really comes out that the screenplay is very smart. Yeah. I think. Yeah, so, so Ted possesses his dad. Yeah, they jump in his father's ear and Ted possesses his father, and Ted possessing his dad tells them that there are robots that killed his son. But, but were killed by evil robots. And nobody in the police precinct believes them, They of don't hurt the babes. <laughs> I totally possess my dad. <laughs> I love, I love when other characters play Bill and Ted, because when these two characters do it, they really show their comedic and acting range, because they just nail the mannerisms that are going yeah, on. Yeah, I feel in like voice. the the actor who does, hold on, I, I know his name. He shows up in the third movie also. He's in the third movie. Yeah, Hal, um, Hal Landon Jr. Yeah. I feel like he probably had the time of his fucking life doing that scene. Yeah, so Bill possesses another guy who's like the lieutenant. and I believe you, dude! Yeah, and they realize that they're not getting a, getting through to anyone, so they leave the host bodies, and they go to a, a seance. That, an- another good uh, Bill and Ted movie title, Bill and Ted Crash a Seance. And uh, Missy is leading the seance, and they're like, do these things ever work, man? And he's like, no, but they will today. Hey. Bill and Ted were killed! <laughs> so the, the people are calling out for, like, historical figures. And Clark Gable. <laughs> and Clark Gable. <laughs> and um, then Bill and Ted come out. And they're like, how's it going, New Age dudes? <laughs> <laughs> so the person leading the seance, Missy, thinks that they are evil spirits. And he, she starts speaking Welsh. <laughs> she starts speaking Welsh <laughs> out of her book, uh... Because she has a book on how to rid, on how to get rid of evil spirits. Yes. And so she sends them to hell. Yeah. So Bill and Ted are floating through a blank void because she was sent sent them to hell. Yeah. I'd also like to point out that the scene where they are like just screaming and falling down, and they're like, "Dude, this is a totally deep hole." That's the <laughs> DVD menu, which is brilliant. <laughs> it's so good. It's it's really funny. And then I like the part where they're like, "Now what?" <laughs> so they keep screaming yeah, they just keep and then they screaming. play 20 questions yeah they start playing 20. and then they fall into hell we got totally lied to by our album covers <laughs> so they see a giant devil horn guy and they realize it's satan now they don't actually yeah. call him satan in this they call him beelzebub but it's basically the devil yeah i i love the i i really like this uh devil design it's not in the movie it's much, really good it's it's really cool it's a mix of like goat and beast and like traditional devil horn satan imagery it's really cool yeah there's a lot of good design work in this movie i i really like the look of hell in i i think both i think both bogus journey and they they throw back to it and face the music but i think the look of hell yeah. in both is very very good it's really cool yeah so satan pulls their chain and brings them into the fiery mouth and of, like, the, of a giant ro- of a giant robot devil or, or a giant... Yeah, giant robot devil they yeah. climb on top of the metal firehead and then they ask bales above if they can go and he's like you can go and they're like you know you get a real bad rap but you're actually a cool you're dude, an actually an okay <laughs> dude. But, then the, but then they go down another hole <laughs> so a trap door opens underneath them and they go into like the labyrinth from hellraiser 2 <laughs> yes I was trying to think of what this reminded me of, and it was like, shit, it's Hellraiser 2. But it's true. He is in his own hell, just as you are in yours. 
so they open up a green door and there's all this light and they wind up in like this German expressionist set. Now German expressionism was a cinema movement in the 1920s and 1930s, mostly of silent films in the horror genre that particularly distorted the size and shapes of sets to give them specific emotional impacts. You can see this in films such as The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Nosferatu, or many other German silent films. Now this is called back to in the set design here. It's probably a reference to the 1926 film Faust by F.W. Murnau, who also directed Nosferatu. Uh, there's a lot of Faustian elements to the story, you know, the deal with the devil and stuff like that. And uh, this shows that the people that make this movie aren't just interested in, like, you know, classic literature. <laughs> but they're also interested in, like, film history. And I find that a lot of fun, you know, that they're really bringing back these sort of these things. You can see this influence mostly in modern day on a lot of the works of Tim Burton. Um, especially some of his earlier films, they have a very German expressionist aesthetic with the set design. So yeah, I think that the fact that they reference this period in film history is awesome, and it really lends, I think, a great tone and mood to these scenes in Hell, because it makes everything seem sort of surreal in the way that was intended in those early films. So yeah. Yeah. That was my little film nerd digression on the history of German expressionism and Bill and Ted. Yes! <laughs> So, in one of the hells, Colonel Oates is coming after him, and he says, Get down and give me Drop infinity. Drop down and give me infinity. There's no way I could do infinity push-up. <laughs> so, they run out of the room, and then they're like, We're in our own personal hell. And then there's a beat, and then he says, Let's split up. <laughs> yeah, because that way they it can't get us as bad. Yeah, they both go into separate hells where they are turned into where they turn into children. <laughs> Ted enters the pink room, and Bill's room is blue. And in Bill's room, he's having a family birthday for his grandmother, who wants a kiss. Granny S. Preston Esquire. There's <laughs> a gift basket to Deacon, and a giant bunny appears, like an Easter bunny at the top of the stairs, saying he made his you brother made cry. You made your little brother cry! <laughs> and they both get chased by the grandmother and the bunny, and then they escape both these rooms. <laughs> it's actually fairly scary, you know? Yeah. Like, this is effective horror movie stuff like legit when the bunny starts chasing him and mocking him like you stole the kids easter basket <laughs> it's actually kind of terrifying <laughs> yeah and then the voice comes out with probably bills above is like choose your eternity so colonel oats granny and the easter bunny chase bill and ted through the hell sanctum which is, is a amazing. sentence i never thought i would ever have to write <laughs> but it's a great <laughs> sentence though <laughs> They ask for the Reaper, and he appears in the Void. So now they're back in the Void with the Reaper. Yeah. And I like to say, who's the guy that plays the Grim William Reaper? William Sadler. Um, William Sadler is so good I in this movie. I fucking love William Sadler's death. Like, this is honestly <laughs> my favorite version of death in anything ever. He's so good. His performance yeah. is fantastic. I love the way they characterize him. It's mwah, it's one of the best things ever. I would agree with you. And I love how he's German also, which may be, again, a throwback to German expressionism. He's kind of like this European accent where he's like, no, what are you doing? So so they challenge him to a game. So he's like, choose your game. And so they choose they... Battleship. <laughs> and he's a sore loser, of course. Like, you have to... Just like Napoleon. It's like, you have sunk my battleship. Best two out of three. And then they play Clue. It's like, <laughs> and, and he's like, I believe Colonel Buster did it in the kitchen. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. No. It was Professor Wall. So then they play like this electronic football game, which I think might be dated because I don't know what it is. Um, yeah. 
but and then they play Twister, which yeah, and then they play Twister, and Death playing Twister is a blessed image. <laughs> <laughs> so Death agrees to take them back begrudgingly, yeah. and they decide to make a good robot bill. Yeah, so they yeah, so they go to heaven. They decide to make a good robot bill and Ted, so then they go to heaven. Yeah, they go to heaven yeah. and they get man, and, and so they try to beat up they they beat up these three these three guys to actually like sneak into heaven. It's like, man, how must it feel to like transcend to like heaven? Like to be as good to be so good in your life that you finally have achieved paradise and they get beat up by some random dudes. <laughs> <laughs> right, cuz they mug them for their clothing. And the reason why they want to build the robots is they need robots to defeat the evil robots. Yeah, well, Bill Makes and sense. Bill and Ted meet God. Yes, they do. They ask God to be like, you know, can you direct us to this great scientist to help us build, you know, good robot uses to defeat the evil robot uses? Station. Station. Well, by the way, before that, St. Peter, who is black, okay, cool, Yeah. <laughs> asks what the meaning of life is, so then they quote music lyrics. Yeah, every rose like... has its thorn. <laughs> Just like so... every cowboy <laughs> thinks it's sad sad song so the white doors open to heaven they speak to god and god tells them to go after a guy named station to uh find the robots uh to make the robots so then god makes them a disc which is like some sort of road map to where they need to go so robo bill and ted break all the dishes now back on earth and dunk their own heads yeah they they play evil robot head basketball <laughs> and which also by the way the, the special effects in this movie are fantastic yes so good so Ted's eyes go white, and he gets another message from Chuck... Chuck Denomalos. Chuck Denomalos, who tells him to stop wasting time. So they're in heaven, they're looking for a guy named Station. And by the way, they mentioned Exorcist 3 before, and there's a scene in Exorcist 3, spoiler alert to you because you haven't seen Exorcist 3, where it's a dream sequence in heaven. And I wonder if that had some sort of inspiration on these heaven scenes. I'm not sure. That's just my idea. But anyway, they find two aliens playing charades with Ben Franklin. Like, did, did you assume that the most brilliant scientist in the entire universe would be from Earth? <laughs> so they're, they're two aliens and they're, they're, they're collectively fun. called Station. Now, my favorite, my favorite part about the charades game is they say Smokey and the Bandit 3. Mm, Smokey, Smokey is, is the, the Bandit. bandit. <laughs> Einstein. Einstein yeah, says Einstein, that, and Einstein. this is actually true. When Smokey and the Bandit 3 was made, they made the awful idea to have Smokey play both Smokey and the Bandit, <sighs> and they were going to call it Smokey is the Bandit. When that failed with test audiences, they then changed it to Smokey and the Bandit Part 3 with many different rewrites and reshoots to make Smokey not the Bandit. <laughs> That is a true story. I also like I also like how uh, Death's guess is a uh, Butch and Sundance the early years. So the aliens, which by the way, these amazing like Stan Winston or maybe like you know, uh, uh, who is the guy that did the Muppets? Uh, Jim Henson. Jim Henson. It's almost like a Jim Henson level special effect here going on. Yeah. It's really good. The aliens follow Bill and Ted and Death. They wake up yeah. alive again and. They, then, they go to the uh, hardware store. But before that, either Bill or Ted pulls out a worm from their ear and says, Dinner's over, worm dude. Yeah. <laughs> so death falls from the sky, and then they get inside their band trunk, and then they, uh, Robo, Bill, and Ted are now, you know, they try to hit stray cats in their car, and they fly through the windshield and into the windows of the three girls, two of which, of course, are the girlfriends. Uh, who is the third girl? I was kind of confused I, I by that. I think it's Missy. Okay, it's Missy. Yeah. So Bill and Ted bring the aliens to the building emporium, and they use their evil breath to knock out the third lady. The robots use their evil breath to knock out Missy. 
Yeah. Yes. So they show their robot sides to girlfriends, and Robo Bill and Ted are told real Bill and Ted are still alive. Now, Death goes by a smoker when he's in the hardware store and says, See you real soon. <laughs> See you real soon. <laughs> oh so my... the stations merge in a kind of Steven Universe yeah, there's thing. a yeah the station fusion into one they, big station. They merge into a big pink blob of goo that then makes a bigger station, and big station makes good robots. Now they have the two girls tied up in the battle of the band stage and plan to kill them after their performance. The robot Bill and Ted do, which the host is unconcerned by, which is at first humorous, but then we realize it's because. The host is actually George Carlin, yes. otherwise known as Rufus. Yes. So there's some pretty great funk rock music playing in the soundtrack. It's Battle really stations. good. What do you, yeah. What yeah. do you think of the the music in this movie? I love it. It's so good. There's so many great like sort of you know funk rock songs. Yeah, the Battle Station song that plays as they're building the robots. Ex excelente. And we'll get to it when we get to the credits. But the final song. Holy shit! Mm-hmm. Great. So, good Bill and Ted arrive at the concert and get remote-controlled robots. Now, Robo Bill and Ted go on the stage and are confronted by real Bill and Ted. And now everybody in the audience is, of course, freaking the fuck out. And and Robo Bill and Ted knock the heads off of and explode evil Robo Bill and Ted. They kiss their girls after saving them. Everybody in the crowd cheers. But then Nomalos exits a phone booth. That has appeared in the aisle. And I like to say that as I talk about these movies more and more, I find myself slipping into the cadence of Bill and Ted. <laughs> and it's bizarre. That's and I'm these, not sure if I like that's it. That's what these movies do to you. <laughs> Bodacious. Most triumphant. Yeah. So, Denomolo short-circuits the cameras and takes over all televisions, telling everyone in the world that he is going to control all of Earth. Then they decide to escape and go back in time and put a cage and sandbag over his head. Which, by the yeah. way, this reminds me of a, a um, there was a comedy parody special of Doctor Who. Oh, The Curse of the Fatal Death. Yes, Curse of the Fatal Death. I simply traveled back in time a hundred years. And I bribed the architect. Say hello to the spikes of doom. <laughs> Say hello to the sofa of reasonable comfort. Naturally, I anticipated your journey back in time, and so I traveled slightly further back and bribed the architect first. Or so you think. Naturally, I anticipated your traveling back in time, so I traveled back in time to an even further point, and I bribed the architect first. Well, naturally, I anticipated your journey back to an even earlier point. Doctor, will you stop showing off? It goes into, it's more of the stable time loop logic from the first mm-hmm. film. So they set up the cage and they set up the sandbag. And then he's like, well, I will set, I will go back after I have vanquished you and set up this key. <laughs> and then I will set up this gun. And <laughs> on. But it just fires a flag that says Wild Stallion's rule. And it's like, oh, good plans, Anomalos, but you forgot one thing. Only the winners are going to be able to go back and set things up. That's going to be <laughs> us, dude. And then Death Melvin's Denomalos. Yeah, <laughs> Melvin. <laughs> so Ted's dad arrests Denomalos, and the owner of the venue uh, was Rufus the whole time. I also like as how as, as Denomalos is getting arrested, Death is just like, book him, Dano. 
<laughs> so now they now perform on global television and they go back in time and practice for 12 months so that they're months. actually good now 16 months for 16 months okay yeah. 16 months that was a, and they now that have was an kids 16, yeah and they have kids who and will, a beard now who will who will who will be playing a role in the next movie <laughs> stations on the bongos and good robot are backup dancers and yeah. death is on the acoustic bass. Yeah, he is on bass. <laughs> not the electric bass. <laughs> the, the acoustic bass. The acoustic like, bass. Sooner you could be a king or an old street sweeper, but sooner or later you dance with the reaper. <laughs> <laughs> so he, uh, he does a little dance and gives a little rhyme. And uh, they play the music. And they have this amazing song called God Gave, you, God gave, God gave Rock and Roll, roll to, to You. you. Which it's, was stuck in my head for like an hour after so I watched this movie. It's so fucking good. It's such a good song. And uh, it ends with the credits overlapping with news stories of their sudden success. You have wild stallions, you know, becoming these huge phenomenons. And, like, they got movies made about them. And the death wins the Indy 500. And they play Mars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which kind of conflicts with the, the story that happens later, Yeah, maybe? It's, it's a little weird. Because I guess the idea is supposed to be that they fizzled out after all this happen but like how do you fizzle out after you play mars like <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i guess you could just say that the end credits are non-canonical <laughs> that's that's also a possibility <laughs> yeah so what did you think of bill and ted's bogus journey bill and ted's bogus journey is one of the most creatively bonkers and just you know utterly wonderful and creative comedies i have ever seen it it's like the more i think about it the more i'm like this is probably one of my favorite comedies because it's so creative it's shockingly intelligent the imagery is fantastic the effects are great it's it's funny as hell it's you know i i'm laugh i laugh so hard throughout this movie and William Sadler's death is just one of the best characters in all of fiction. It's just a rip roaring rock and good time, you know. It's excellent. Um, Most I think excellent. it's a, I think it's more creative than Excellent Adventure. I think the stakes are higher than Excellent Adventure. The music's better. I think that the plot is way more interesting, and the art design and special effects are fantastic. The level of detail and attention that was given to this story, more than was necessarily needed for an 80s comedy, really shows how far they wanted to make this movie good. There's clearly a lot of ambition and heart and love put into making this movie, and not just about the movie itself, but movies and storytelling in general, and I love it. Yeah. So now let's get on to the third movie, Bill and Ted Face the Music, which is of course new and i think we have the most divided opinions on yeah so i i really enjoyed this movie um i was mostly just eh on this movie like i like it but a lot of it seems to fall kind of flat as it sort of repurposes plot points from the last two movies um I, we'll get into that once we talk about it's the plot. probably something that works better if you are already a fan of the i will admit it's probably something that works better if you were a fan of the Bill and Ted movies prior to this. Whereas... Right, I just watched all of these in one day. Yeah. So, since the events of the previous film, Theodore Ted Logan and William Bill Preston Esquire of the band Wild oh, Stallions, Stallions have reached an all-time low because they're washed up and nobody likes them anymore. And I like the part where um, they're, at, they're at a wedding. Yeah, so it opens with them after, we, after they established that the band slowly fizzled out after their hit single, Those Who Rock, slowly fell further and further down the charts, and they kept narrowing <laughs> in their focus on 
trying to write the song that unites the world and they kept failing at it but they they do like this experimental music stuff at the wedding scene that i really actually kind of enjoy yeah it's really good so yeah so it opens on the wedding where missy is getting married again this time to deacon ted's little brother which of course would make ted's dad his own son (laughs) which is weird yeah um and uh they decide to play it might be the song that really yeah and it has this ridiculously long title what is the title it's that which binds us through time the chemical physical and biological nature of love an exploration of the meaning of meaning part one (laughs) yes yeah and it 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 basically mixes some like experimental rock and noise music with this really kind of interesting throat singing it sounds like something that like yoko ono might have tried back in the 60s but it's obviously like and the bagpipes don't forget the the bagpipes bagpipes. (laughs) so it's a mix of scottish and alaskan sounds you know (laughs) as you do and i enjoy it but then again i'm pretentious as fuck I, I actually do. I, I will agree. I like I like the exploration of the meaning of meaning. <laughs> yeah. I like their more kind of, you know, esoteric side of their career. <laughs> yeah. The experimental face of wild yeah. stallions. Oh. Now, Bill and Ted now have daughters who are pretty cool, and it is... Yeah, Billy and Thea. Thea, right. Yeah, because Bill and Ted named their daughters after each other. So it's, it's yeah. Billy Logan and Thea Preston. Now, I'm not sure if Thea's acting is a little trying too hard to be like Ted or if she just nails the tone. Because at some points, she almost seems like she's struggling to do the voice, <laughs> you know? <laughs> to be fair, but, the voice is hard to do. <laughs> yeah. But at other times, it seems like the fact that she sounds exactly like him is, one, hilarious. And I think probably would have worked better if the rest of the movie were as silly as that performance I it's think. a little more like this movie is still very funny but yeah. i will say that because it's the end of the trilogy and because it's been so long it is by design more introspective than the first two i don't think that's a problem it's just like a thing about the movie yeah it's kind of like if they ever made a ghostbusters 3 it's the type of movie that would have been like a looking back of you know gen xers now adults uh an update for them while giving some sort of resolution to this period of time that they were emotionally invested in um although i think it leans in a bit too hard on that to the point where like if you're not like super invested in the universe then a lot of the very emotional moments in this film just kind of be like eh to me it's not as silly as excellent adventure and it's not as outlandish or ambitious as bogus journey um, but it has this sort of sense that it's trying to complete the story in the first two films. And I think it kind of trips in a couple places, but overall does fairly well. But anyway, what happens after that? Yeah, so, okay. So after so after the, their experimental face ends, <laughs> um, so apparently Ted's dad still doesn't believe that any of the fantastical stuff from the first two movies happened, which is a little weird considering that death was in their band. And well, he made... just assumed it was a guy with, like, white face makeup. I, I suppose, but they also have <laughs> robots. Like, <laughs> Yeah, but they could have bought robots somewhere. You know, could maybe they in, the... in, like, 1991? Well, hey, they made it for the movie in 1991. Okay, fair. <laughs> so what happens after that? 
Yeah, so 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 this is where Bill and Ted go to couples therapy with the princesses, and they don't. Oh, I like the scene. I yeah. love this scene. They don't. They don't understand how couples therapy works. Because they both go into couples therapy together, and then they're both like me and Bill mm-hmm. both adore you. you. And the therapist is like, "Don't you understand how that is a problem?" Like, and she, he's like, "Oh, okay." You know, couples therapy—it's usually only just one couple. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps what you need to be saying is, "I love you." And he's like, "Oh, okay, I All get right. it." I, and I, Bill and Bill love you, love and, you, and Joanna, and Joanna, <laughs> with, with all of our, all our hearts, with all of our hearts. <laughs> I think I did. It's really it, dude. funny. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, I, I, I enjoy that scene, but it is kind of weird to see their relationship not doing as well, which makes sense considering that, you know, their career has taken the sudden nose down. Yeah. But it seems like they, they would have been happy with them regardless well, of if they we made sort money. of get to, <laughs> and the idea is, um, and we see it a little bit later, is that the princesses just feel bad for them. Yeah. Because they've basically been hang- banging their heads against the wall for over two decades trying to write this one song that will unite humanity and you know they 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 feel bad for their husbands so what happens after that yeah so all right so bill and ted uh go back home they they meet up with their daughters again and i love i love the relationship between bill and ted and billy and thea and i like that it's wholesome and supportive it is really they all like each other Although the movie does kind of, like, blame them for, like, being 24 and still living at home. But, by the way, that's, like, a normal thing nowadays. I feel like that's that's only really the dad, though. And the dad yeah. is established as in... Uh, Ted's dad, I should say. And Ted's dad is established as being kind of an asshole. So, like... Yeah. That's fine. And But, yeah, like I was saying, I like that it's wholesome and supportive. Because I feel like it would have been so easy to do the, like... Oh, you just don't understand our taste in music, Dad. You're so outdated, <laughs> and I would have hated that. Like, because that's yeah. But I, terrible. I think it's also kind of weird that they made like their taste in music a direct reflection of their own taste in music. Although they are into more a bit more experimental yeah. stuff, I'd say yeah, more they heady are more, and you know, like they listen pretentious to things stuff. They like, yeah, yeah. What happens after that? Because I think there's a, a scene that happens where they're in the future and well, we get some more of the future yeah, stuff, right? So yeah, well. They're, they're sort of, Bill and Ted are sort of talking about, like, hey, yeah, maybe we have been banging against our heads against the wall for 25 years, you know, is this really worth it, you know, I, you know, and Ted's like, you know, I went to the music store, he'll give me, like, $6,400 for, like, this Led Zeppelin guitar, like, <laughs> Bill's like, oh, think about our fans, dude, I thought, <laughs> dude, Bob and Wendy will totally understand. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but then, um, yeah, there's a, a time machine shows up, and we meet Kristen Shaw, uh, a.k.a. Yes. Mabel from Gravity Falls. As I was Ken- like, wait, is that Mabel? And then I heard her voice, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's definitely Mabel. It's Mabel. Now, it, yeah. it took me way too long to actually understand the conflict of the movie, because <laughs> um, the great leader, we understand that there's like some timeline issues, and that's because there is a threat that they might not write the song. Which causes, which, and if they don't write the song, all of reality will collapse. Right, and that's why the great leader sent back the killer robot, Dennis, to try and kill <laughs> Bill and Ted in case they don't write the song. Which, But if they did that, then wouldn't they be undoing their own timeline? Okay, well, the, okay, well, we'll, we'll get to that. But No, the... but I'm confused. Please explain this to me. Okay. The reason she sent the killer robot is because 
there are people on the council who interpret the prophecy about Preston and Logan uniting the world as the death of Bill and Ted will lead to. Okay. So that's why they send the killer robot. Oh, okay. So that was mentioned as like an, an offhand kind of way. That's the thing is that the major conflict of the story feels like it could have been communicated better. I, I suppose it is. I, it is somewhat, it's arguably a little too subtle in yeah. some cases. So they're using Rufus's phone booth. Yeah. So and Bill and Ted attempt to steal the song from the future yeah, well, version of themselves. Yeah, because they, because they go to the future and the, fu- and the people in the future, because, okay, so Rufus has obviously died because George Carlin died in real died life. Died in, in, in the, the 2000s. In the intervening years between in two and three. And so yep. Kristen Shaw is playing Kelly, Rufus's daughter, who has way more screen time than Rufus ever did in either of the movie, previous movies. Um, Rufus always feels like a character character that should have been more important than he was kind of it's weird because people always talk about rufus and remember rufus but he's barely in the in the first step for you get like a such a big name comedian like the face of the comedic counterculture in the 1970s and 1980s and you do like very little with him like maybe that's part of the joke like to be that fair. might be part of the joke that'd be yeah. hilarious i think in the first movie they had george carlin in just because he was similar to the general ethos of what they were doing like this is a comedy that sort of dresses down modern culture i think in a way because you know it presents the slacker characters that don't necessarily agree with the traditional means of attainment and say that they are going to be the people that are going to lead the future which is of course bit of a power fantasy for gen x slackers you know <laughs> but i think george carlin is sort of a person that would agree with that general concept and agree and uh be like oh yeah with that vibe and then they brought him back because you know he's a because consistent part of the universe yeah, yeah. I, that's my that's my theory as to why george carlin's in these movies besides just being a great comedian yeah so the future is now super sleek and shiny which i'm not a big fan of i wish they would have stuck with the retro futuristic aesthetic i agree with I, you know, I agree that I prefer the retrofuturist aesthetic, but I actually have a theory as to why it's super sleek now. Okay, um, what is your theory? Uh, in the in the next scene that happens, the council, you know, is clearly, you know, they they have their doubts in Bill and Ted, and you know, you you need to write the song. You only have a certain amount of time. And you of know, course, the alien council all have weirdly big collars. Yes, they like all Doctor have. Who. They all have weirdly big collars. So the idea I feel like of these movies is that Rufus was kind of the one who led the charge on the Bill and Ted as saviors of the universe thing. Yes. And now that he's dead, and there is dissent among the council. Like, and, you know, as we said, you know, many believe that the, that they should actually kill Bill and Ted. And right. I think the idea is that because there is this doubt in the council and there is doubt about Bill and Ted being the saviors, there is also doubt in the aesthetic that, that was defined by Bill and Ted. I see. So what you're saying is basically that um, they have decided to switch up the aesthetic because, you know, they're not necessarily on the same level of agreement with the Bill and Ted, you know, future positivity stuff. Yes. Okay, so that might be true. I'm just saying that from a purely aesthetical perspective, I prefer the aesthetic of the future in Bogus Journey. I would agree than with you. in this movie. Like, I, yeah. I, I would agree with you, but it's just, agree with you, I'm just saying there's a point as to why it looks like that. I'd also like to point out that the CGI effects for their time right now have not gotten better for how the 80s effects were for their time. No, I because think, uh, a... okay, to be fair, this movie was made for $25 million. This movie was made yes. for very cheap. Yeah, but some shots feel like almost kind of unfinished. Like there's some very obvious green screen in certain shots. Yeah, but know? I don't really mind. Like, eh, it, it doesn't, it's, 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 it's fine. Like, it's fine. I, I can look past it, but I'm just saying there's a general um, way that it, the effects look that might be sort of cheap to people that are used to much 
higher budget stuff. I don't think I don't think most people who who are watching the third Bill and Ted movie particularly care <laughs> about the effects looking at their at their absolute best. Plus, this is the only Bill and Ted movie where the circuits of time don't look like complete shit. So that's something. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, the future wives, Joanna and Elizabeth, visit their present counterparts going on a quest to find if they are happier, right? Yeah, that, that is a plot point. So basically, and... okay, so we are introduced to the, um, so we are introduced to a, throw, a ticking clock mechanic once again, where they apparently will only have 77 minutes, uh, or 78 minutes, um, to write the song that unites the world and saves reality because otherwise reality ends right and the killer robot is sent by the great leader at this point in case they need to kill bill and ted in order for the great yeah. change to happen yeah so <laughs> which so they first off so i don't think, understand because you know, it's if, pretty established that the great change wait I, i'm saying it's it's pretty established that the great change happened because of a musical song written by bill and ted so why would they think bill, killing bill and ted would cause the future that they have um, i don't I, I i think i think it's the the council i think some members of the council were just being petty jackasses for a script that's apparently been rewritten since 2010 this is bizarrely not thought through <laughs> is my point you know the the, the point of the matter is that e either way there are people on the council well again as they say there are different interpretations to what that could mean as they say and obvious and here's the thing they're wrong so, does it really matter? Technically, since this is a comedy and it's only 90 minutes and you're not going to be thinking about this that hard if you're like a casual viewer, yes. It doesn't matter for most people, but to me, it matters because I think it's kind of a thing in the plot that doesn't really hold up to scrutiny, you know? Yeah. But anyway. So, Bill and Ted are like, all right, if we know we're going to write the song, but we haven't yet, why don't we just go to the future? And when we have written the song... And just take it from ourselves. Wouldn't that be stealing? Right. Is it really stealing? We're stealing it from ourselves, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, the daughters are trying to put together a group of, like, the best band ever so that they can help their fathers uh, write the song that will unite the universe, right? Yes. And so they go back in time and they get try and get Jimi Hendrix, but then they get Louis Armstrong. And I'd like to point out that the guy who played Louis Armstrong, I'm not a big fan of this performance of Louis Armstrong. Maybe it's just because I think doing Louis' voice is very difficult. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I, I think he does a good job for, you know, the task he's been given. I much prefer the Jimi Hendrix performance. Oh, the, the, yeah, I will, I will say I prefer the Jimi Hendrix to the Louis Armstrong. Um, but so, with Louis Armstrong, they are able to uh, convince Jimi Hendrix to come on board. I do like the bit where Louis Armstrong is like amazed by a phone. You gotta, boy, you gotta come check this out. <laughs> and also Wolfgang, Amadeus, and Mozart, Ling Loon, and a cave woman named Grom, who is apparently the best drummer in human history that somehow Lun Lun knew about. What happens next? So in the meantime, Bill and Ted have are traveling to through the future at different points to try and get the song. So first they travel to 2022, where a washed up older Bill and Ted are playing an open mic night because their marriages fell apart and their daughters won't talk to them and the, the, their lives suck basically now your theory as to why the time travel is different here in that this seems to be a branching timeline is because of the timelines breaking down because they might not write the song 
Yeah, I th I think the idea is that this timeline, the t the 2022, 2025, 2030 timeline is a timeline that isn't actually meant to happen. You see how this gets much more complicated than most other Bill and Ted movies, needlessly. Like, this could have been rewritten in a way that made more sense, I think. Because they need a reason for Bill and Ted in the future to not give Bill and Ted the music. So they concoct this idea that Bill and Ted are entering a different timeline, even though that's different than how well, the time okay. worked and previously. Well, okay, and it's also, to be fair, it, it's also just, it could be, like, a different version of how the ending plays out. But, okay... If they write the song that unites the world, how are they still that washed up and broke okay, and but depressing? Here's the thing. As shown in the ending, they don't actually write the song. Right. They don't actually write the song, but that still wouldn't mean that they have a happy ending at the end of the movie. So why would they still be depressed and, you know, broke and divorced? Because, because that version of the timeline is a version of the timeline where they didn't help out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you understand how this is I'm, I'm doing italian hands here i'm doing italian hands in confusion <laughs> that this does not make sense it's fine don't if worry this was about like it. back to the future and we clearly explained that this was a branching timeline it would have made more sense imagine that this line represents time here's the present 1985 the future and the past prior to this point in time Somewhere in the past, the timeline skewed into this tangent, creating an alternate 1985. Alternate to you, me, and Einstein, but reality for everyone else. We can't because if we travel into the future from this point in time, it will be the future of this reality. And I think for a comedy, it's important to explain how the time travel works, you know. But this movie just kind of goes, eh. It's time travel, whatever. It. You just need to have a thing so that then they can think that they're not going to do it so then they can go into the future and yada, 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 and then we can have plot. That's the problem with this movie screenplay, I think, is that a lot of things happen because plot, because it needs to happen for the other things to happen. There's a lot of convenience in this storyline. It's I fine think. to worry about it. Okay, so what happens next? Okay, so... They go to 2022 and that doesn't work. So then they, well, they, well, first they go back to the marriage counseling because to try and make it better. But of course they make it worse. Right. <laughs> and I'm drinking way too like... much. But Donna, you don't even <laughs> drink. Well, then I will. <laughs> there are some really funny moments. I just think generally also, I think the colors in this film, it's not a very colorful movie like the last ones were. It's, it's still, I don't know, it's still fairly colorful. No, I mean, a lot of the aesthetic is kind of washed out and almost kind of gray. Almost like the post-production editing colors are like, yeah, let's make this look gray-blue, you know? <laughs> That's our aesthetic is gray-blue now. <laughs> when, you know, in Bogus Journey, we had neon colors. Oh, by the way, they go into the future and they they find themselves pretending to be successful, living in the mansion of yeah. Dave Grohl. 2025, where <laughs> where the, the future Bill and Ted pretend they're british because they've been because they've been quote-unquote summering in medieval england <laughs> like and dave roll shows up because it's his mansion and because cameo and they're like you guys didn't even write the song it was dave roll i told you <laughs> i told you dave roll was coming back this week i thought it was <laughs> next week so traveling five years into the future they find themselves imprisoned you know and they're weirdly buff 
and uh, yelling a death march, or they're yelling like some sort of death chant, and they're like, "This song is not excellent." It's like it's like it's you a little know. it's a little on the dark side, but you know that's cool. <laughs> and the robot attempts to terminate the two of them, but is then beaten up by future Bill and Ted and the other prisoners, making the two escape. Because they're yeah. all like, you know, you know what happens if he kills them, right? <laughs> yeah, he kills us, dude. And Billy and Thea and the rest of the group of uh, musicians return to present day, and they meet up with Kid Cuddy, who Kid is Cuddy, um... inexplicably in this movie, and inexplicably <laughs> knows a lot about time travel. I, look, I'll be honest, I don't really know who Kid Cuddy is, but I like what? the gag <laughs> where he is somehow an expert on temporal astrophysics, if only Wait, because... Chris. You don't know who Kid Cudi is? No. He's a he's a hip hop artist. He made the song Day and Night, big hit in 2009. I don't remember that. Okay, he did a album recently with Kanye West called Kid See Ghosts. Well, I don't care about Kanye West, so I don't, okay. I don't know why I would know that. You need to listen to more Kid Cudi, Chris. <laughs> Man on the Moon Part 1 and 2 are classics, okay? <laughs> okay, but Anyways. the point is, I like the gag of him being this expert in temporal astrophysics, if only because it's more or less just the same gag they did with the Harlem Globetrotters in Futurama. <laughs> Yes. So Billy and Thea open their father's studio up to their guests and they find the robot waiting for them and the robot for some reason decides to kill them with the laser and I don't understand what Dennis is doing. Well, I don't think Dennis understands what Dennis is doing. <laughs> okay, yeah, I get that. But Dennis opens up the thing and then he kills them and then feels bad about it. Why does he feel bad about it? Because he's gaining a conscience. Okay. Why is he gaining a conscience? Did the they make him wrong or something? He's gaining sentience. Okay, but the other weird thing is that he doesn't seem to be completely robot. There's like a flesh part of him. So is he actually a cyborg? I think that's more just the makeup effect. Okay, but he says that he is a name. A very specific name. <laughs> yes. That, okay. That, that Kelly's mom gave him. Right. So I'm thinking that this used to be a person that would turn into a robot. Like a cyborg thing. I suppose that's technically possible. Right, because what other what reason would the robot have to suddenly grow, grow a conscience, you know? Okay, you're not wrong, I suppose. But the, here's the other thing, is that, like, um, the whole robot growing a conscious thing is something that, like, it's not set up. It just sort of happens, and then you're like, me as the viewer, I'm like, oh, okay, this robot is having an existential crisis. But they don't even do, like, the funny version of an existential crisis. They just have him occasionally show up places as a third wheel. And I don't really understand what the point of this character is, besides getting everybody into hell. Well, I mean, the joke is that he's a killer robot who's socially awkward. I, like, that's, that's not funny. That's the joke. <laughs> it's not funny. I, I find that funny. It's not. It's just like, oh, I'm, I'm a robot. Oh, oh. <laughs> and I think part of it's the performance. I don't think he knew what he was doing, the guy who was playing him. I think he could have went way harder on the performance. Besides that, I also think the writing of his character could have been better. He could have actually, you know, had a character besides just having an existential crisis. There's a way to do the character that's totally ignored well, such as Donnie in The Big Lebowski, but I don't think it's done very well here. And I think that his character particularly points out how a lot of this film feels like it had a lot of different haphazard ideas that were kind of mushed together into this Frankenstein film. Which became Bill and Ted Face the Music. Anyways, 
What do you think of the robot? I like him. Why? <laughs> I like his character. He's fun. He's a fun How is he fun? <laughs> I like the socially awkward killer robot. Okay, I find fine. it funny. <laughs> fine. What happens next? <laughs> okay. Bill and Ted go to 2067 and they meet up with their old selves like in the nursing home. Because they're and... in their 90s. And the elderly two hand Bill and Ted a USB flash drive containing, containing the song Face the Music. And that is the song that's going to bring everybody together. But then the robot shows up and accidentally admits to killing his family and is like, well, because, I want well, the song. Well, not accidentally. He's like, I, I have to confess my guilt. I... I, I, I lasered your daughters. And I like I'm the sorry. reaction. You lasered them? I think that's funny, but you I don't understand. You sent our daughters to hell? Did he do that on purpose or accidentally? Accidentally. Okay. Why did he do it accidentally? Is he just trained to kill anyone? Yeah. This is a very imperfect robot. Like, the Terminator only killed people named Sarah Connor. I don't understand how this robot is programmed. Oh, no, 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 no. He killed them because he was programmed to kill Preston Logan. Okay. And they are technically Preston and Logan. Yes. Oh, yeah, he, Bill breaks the flash drive in two pieces and begs the robots to kill them so then they can go into hell and save them, right? Yeah, but the, and, the, and the robot is I can't do it. I, I have to kill myself. Goodbye, cool world. <laughs> and that is a joke that's also oddly dark and also I don't think works. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of find it funny. Goodbye, cool world. I... I don't find anything with the robot funny. I like Dennis Caleb McCoy. I don't know what you're talking about. And what happens in hell, Chris? First of all, I just want to say that I disagree with your assessment of Dennis Caleb McCoy, one of the best new characters of 2020. <laughs> trash. <laughs> no, you're wrong. You're trash. <laughs> um, I didn't say you were trash. I said that opinion's trash. Anyway, what happens Your in opinion hell? is trash. Garbage day! Huh? No! So yeah, so they meet up with some surprisingly charismatic demons who tell them how, where to go. And, yeah. and they're like, is that a robot in hell? That's a robot in hell. Yeah. Oh, and apparently Dennis Caleb McCoy is named after Kelly's ex. <laughs> so they meet up with their daughters and Ted's dad apologizes to Ted for not believing in him because he's in hell now because he was yeah. with them when they were vaporized. Bill and Ted try to get the help of death. And we get this, my favorite scene in the film is when he is talking to death, the two of them. And he's like, everybody loved my bass solos. They're like, they went on for you're, 40 minutes. You were playing 40-minute bass solos. Apparently, they, like, sued. They they tried to sue him, and they, like, put a restraining order on, on Death. <laughs> Which is hilarious. And Death also got demoted for, for helping them, by the way, get out. I also like the scene where he's playing hopscotch with himself. And yes. he cheats. <laughs> 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 so what happens after that is that they're not getting through to death. So they the daughters come in and they try and speak some sense into death. And they're like, your solos were so cool, death. They, ju they just weren't ready for an album that was all bass. <laughs> yeah. And then they basically convince death to re-enter the band Wild Stallions. And uh, they all, then what happens after that? So they all get into the, the magic bus. Um, yes, the to, magic bus. To get out of hell and... How does the magic bus get out of hell? It flies out. How? It magic. <laughs> okay. What? <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's a Grim Reaper bus. Don't worry about it. Oh, it's a Grim Reaper bus. Then you yeah. can take yourself out of hell. Okay. Yeah. 
like I, I also like how death you know because they're talking just like I like how you said let's rock because it made me want to rock it's like you don't just want to rock you've got to earn the right to rock <laughs> <laughs> yeah so then they go back to the present yeah and they they're on the highway and so reality has been collapsing throughout because of the threat of writing the song and different you know and different figures from across history have been transporting have been transported to different places and like the sahara desert shows up in san Dimas. Yeah. looking right at it but yeah so it also seems like you could have done a lot more with jokes with like you know having louis armstrong and you know Jimi hendrix together and mozart i mean i like that i like the jam session they do i mean yeah the jam session's cool but like it seems like there's a lot of missed opportunities in this movie to have jokes and comedy so what you're saying is what you would have preferred is if they had just done the billy and thea storyline as one basically a soft reboot of the first movie well not necessarily i think what really would have worked is if they added more you know that sort of tone that playful tone and have it be less serious and sentimental i understand why the sentimentality works if you grew up with these movies it'll probably work for you but to me the sentimentality doesn't match the tone of the last two movies and i think it would be way better if they were just older and then still just had the least amount of shits given still and they had to learn you know like how to be adults i think that would be fun but this movie doesn't do that instead they focus a lot on this plot minutia and a lot of subplots that don't go anywhere because the thing is that there are there are subplots in the first two and there is heart in the first two so i feel like yeah. this the focus shifting slightly more to sentimentality and introspection i do think even on its own merits does work or at least works a lot better than something like well this movie isn't out yet but like ghostbusters afterlife mm -hmm. where the trailer for that seems to be seems to be trying to make Ghostbusters look like freaking Star Wars. Or my like, childhood. My, ch my childhood. And, and yeah. you know, I don't know if that movie's going to be any good. Maybe it will mm -hmm. be. I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic. But the idea about it kind of makes me raise an eyebrow in terms of them digging so hard into reverent sentimentality. But I think right. it works here because the the two the first two movies did have heart. Like, yeah, but they were very unsentimental movies. I and irreverent. You could um I would argue the the ending of two though. I mean yeah, See, yeah. There, it was irreverent and also had heart and emotion and stuff like that. But my point being is that it seems like in this more serious tone that they've taken, they've lost a lot of the humor to me. It, in that. I don't know. I still think it's. I still think it's really funny. Like, it is pretty funny, but the joke was originally that it's two guys that are completely clueless, and the entirety of the future of the universe revolves around them writing a song, and they have to go on wacky adventures to try and fix that. But this movie is more about trying to get over your middle-aged depression, <laughs> <laughs> your feelings and fear of death, and coming to terms with the fact that your children are probably more talented than you are, <laughs> which are all good themes and work well in the story, but I think doesn't really match the tone of the comedy of the last two films. But anyway, so in, in the last scene, we get this mega epic giant universe fixing concert, which ends up being like an EDM rock thing. Yeah, I feel like, okay, so the thing, so the thing was, all right, say what you will about this movie, and I, You've certainly said a lot. Things I disagree with. I like but, the movie. I just have problems. But I feel like this movie, it, whatever issues you may have, I feel like it all comes together 
just so beautifully in this sort of third act climax. And it's such a good ending. And it ends both the movie and the trilogy, I think, very strongly. I think the scene's good. <laughs> Me, like, this is... But, like, I'm, I'm going off of this feel like this is the exactly what I needed right now. Like, this is, this is, this is the uplifting thing we need in, in life. And you're like, it's, it's good. <laughs> it's pretty good. Okay, here's the thing. When you say a song that will bring the world together, it's going to be hard to match expectations. And that's why they don't <laughs> play the full song. Like, right. We've, we forgot to mention, there's a plot point about MP46. Yeah, what's MP46? So the idea is that the, the song is specifically played at MP46, and they, they have a, and they're like, well, does anyone even know where MP46 is? And then when they land on the highway, they discover it's like a mile marker. Yeah. This is also where, they, where Bill and Ted realized that Billy and Thea are actually the ones who write the song because the prophecy only says Preston Logan, not Bill and Ted specifically. And what I really like about this moment is that, again, it probably would have been very easy to have Bill and Ted be like super depressed and bitter about it. And That's, be... by the way, not what I want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I <laughs> don't mistake my negativity for that opinion. What I wanted was for the same non-stop action comedy stuff from the first two movies and then i got a slow-paced drama with a couple jokes <laughs> hey it's more than a couple it's still it's still predominantly a comedy let's be yeah, let's yeah, it's, be real it's still here. a comedy it's just the first two films had a sort of like mel brooks pace to the humor where it was constant non-stop yeah, jokes they're definitely the first two movies are definitely more rapid fire i will give you that and i do like that they're passing the torch onto their kids and yeah it's a story and I, about generational because i like that they're immediately are just like it's cool you got man it's so cool all you guys get to do you know we're here to back you up and they're so supportive and happy for them and it's just it's so great it's so good yeah. to see like i'm okay oh my god i'm actually crying just think although i think the they attempt to make the song i'm going to criticize the song i'm so sorry they attempt to make the song a little too epic and i think if they had stuck with the whole cheesy funk rock thing it might have um, made more sense in the context of the story, considering that what we see of the future in the first two films, it's all like funk rocky and stuff like that. Yes, but again, and what that would make sense if, again, if it was Bill and Ted writing the song, but right. it isn't. But then you also have to ask the question, how do people in the future not know that it's Billy and Thea? Divergent timelines? So, so here's the thing, is it took 10 years to make this story, and I think... A lot of these ideas could have been wrapped up neatly into what the what the subplot should have been, I think, you know, and have it be done in a humorous way because I don't actually want like a continuity porn Bill and Ted movie. But I'm just <laughs> oh, saying that God. a lot of the, the plot stuff doesn't make much sense in the context of the last three movies or in the context of itself, if you look at it. But overall, as a story being told i think it's decent and that's why it's the third and my least favorite i don't think it's bad i like it i just think it has issues so they start playing the song and there's they need to get everybody throughout time all playing the song at once so and there's also a reconciliation with bill and ted and their wives how they're like you know we're the happiest in this timeline and they finally right. learn to say i love you <laughs> yes and to each other not with each other to each other i also like how kid cuddy uh, throws out the station throwback um yes yeah. although i wish station would have appeared in this movie that would have been nice i would have liked to see station i will i will okay so then all of time is united in the joy of music and 
There's a there's a the few planets post credits thing. Yeah, all of time and the planets align, and it just ends simply, and it worked. And it's just, yeah. it's a very beautiful ending. And it's kind of one of, again, it's one of those things where if you're invested in this, it, it does mean a lot more to you, but god damn, when it works, it fucking works, you know? Like... Yeah, I thought I thought it was okay. <laughs> yeah, so anyways, so so first of all, there's a bunch of videos they play over the credits yeah. um, of people all around the world. I'd like to point out, these videos are actually all of Bill and Ted fans because oh. there was a contest that they held where it's like, send a, send a video of, you, you know, you guys rocking out and you could be in the movie. So all of these videos are of people who entered this contest up to and including Weird Al, because he's in the movie for all of two seconds, and and people were like, oh, did, oh, like Weird Al has a cameo, and he and Weird Al on Twitter was like, yeah, I, I wasn't paid for this, I just entered the contest because I was a fan. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also the final post credits like rock out with the old villain. Yes. is very nice. Um, I really enjoy this movie. Again, it's probably something that works a lot better if you are invested in the first two prior to this, but I'm not going to act like it is a perfect movie. Like there are things that don't make sense if you hold up the scrutiny, if you hold it up to an extreme amount of scrutiny. But again, you could probably say that about the first two as well. Um, but you know, I still think it's really funny. I re I love Billy and Thea. I think they're great. Well, I don't, I don't want Bill and Ted four. I I'd say don't do that. Like the, this story is done. I would watch a Billy and Thea movie. I will say I would too. I think it wraps up the trilogy very strongly and very well, and it pays off the characters' arcs. I think it's a very beautiful... And again, you know, even though the first two acts are kind of just a mishmash of the first two, I still think it, you know, it works for what it is as this sort of, you know, legacy sequel. And I think the third act is beautiful, and it ends things very strongly. So the whole movie, I feel to me, is made by that climax in that third act. And... You used a term there that I think is kind of the point of the problem I have is like a sequel. And I think I'm not a big fan of like a sequels in general. I prefer if a sequel being made like 30 years later, it, it maintains a consistent tone with the other films. Because I, I don't necessarily, I'm not super invested in Bill and Ted because I watched all these movies in one day. But even if I was, I still think that Bill and Ted Face the Music is while it's good it has kind of clunky plot elements and also is a lot less funny and a lot more self-serious in a way that i think doesn't it doesn't necessarily need to be you know i suppose if you are looking for more sentimental or serious bill and ted which i don't understand well i mean here's the thing if you if you if you already if you love these characters and you know and you grew up especially if you grew up with these characters i feel like the sentimentality works more because it's like you know you're seeing where these characters have where these characters have come from especially for you know a movie that's you know been so long in production and, and you know it's been so long since the last one you kind of expect some degree of you know introspection on how far they've come like again they are adults they are di they are very different right you know right but my my point was is that saying you want that kind of movie about Bill and Ted is sort of to me like saying you want that kind of movie about Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't understand why you would want that. I don't know. You say, you say that, but I have no interest in Beavis and Butthead. But I'm going to be honest. If they made a movie about Beavis and Butthead to <laughs> me... Being old and trying to figure out their legacy. I mean, 
this movie works in certain ways in the story and the comedy, and I especially like the daughters. And honestly, the fact that Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter can do these characters and not have it just be pathetic and depressing is amazing yeah. in and of itself. But I think it lacks the creativity of the last two films, and I think overall its plot construction leaves a lot to be desired. But if you are invested in the Bill and Ted cinematic universe, then sure, you're gonna <laughs> like this, I guess. But to me, it kind of fell a little flat, but it was okay. I gave it like a 6 out of 10. Anyways, I think that about covers it for our Bill and Ted episode. Yeah, this was this was a lot of fun. I, you know, again, I really enjoy all of these movies, so it was fun talking about them. You know, this is such a, it's a really solid, it's a, it's a solid trilogy. It works. It is, yeah. I'd say, even though I, I'm, I'm kind of less positive on the third one, I think it is still a really good trilogy, and I think... The third one does do a good job at, like, you know, wrapping everything up. And, uh, I mean, I don't know when, if if or when we'll ever talk about Bill and Ted again. Like, again, maybe if they make that Billy and Thea movie, which they have talked about. Like, there's apparently... I think they've also talked about making a Bill and Ted 4, haven't they? Well, there, there's been talks about if they make a fourth Bill and Ted, it would be Billy and Thea, I think, is the main conversation that's come up. Okay, um, that'd be cool. Yeah, and, uh, I don't know, maybe we'll talk about the cartoon eventually. <laughs> Hopefully, when we run not. out of, I don't know we, if it's good or not. When we run out of content, we'll talk about the villain Ted cartoon and the and the, <laughs> and the eight episodes of the live action TV show. So yeah, what are we gonna do next week? Next week is uh, we're back to rocket ship roulette, and we have a double feature for the ages: Batman Forever and The Exorcist. A very obvious pairing. True Kino. <laughs> True Kino. Really, they should release them on DVD together. Yeah, where is the Batman Forever and the Exorcist double pack, Warner <laughs> Brothers? I mean, come on. Like, yeah. But yes, this has been Hipster and the Nerd. We do this. This has been a most excellent this has podcast. This most excellent podcast. But this has been Hipster and the Nerd. We do this every week. You can find us on no, Spotify. No, dude. No, no. This has been the dude and the dude. <laughs> This has been the dude and the dude, and we'd like you all to have an excellent day. This has been Hipster and the Nerd. We do this every week. You can find us on Spotify, (laughs) Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. Please, you know, leave us a nice five-star review. Share it with all your friends. Spread the word on social media. Hashtag Hipster and the Nerd. Help us grow the show. We very much appreciate it. Send Um, the link to those bodacious babes. Yeah, the bodacious... Yeah, do send the link to those uh, those bodacious babes on on OnlyFans. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I say that? It's staying in. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you can find me at Brian uh, yeah. Brecker on Twitter. Yeah. Or at bbreck2 on Letterbox. And you can find me at uh, meganerd98 on Twitter and on Letterbox. Thank you everybody for listening. We will see you next time. And remember. Be excellent to each other and party on, party on, on dudes. dudes.